So we have this pointer, and uh, we're going to be using it uh, when we pull up a map later on. But a couple things. If you're a man today in this room, I believe you were born with a target on your back. In our culture today, I believe men are under attack. Not only by our culture, but by in the spiritual realm as well. All you have to do is go back to the Genesis 3, going to the garden, and you see that Adam... Adam really did not do what he needed to do, and that was to protect his wife Eve from the temptation that came their way. He basically was on the sidelines and watched from a distance his wife having to deal with the serpent or Satan. And then he went along with the program that she had given into. But what I find most interesting is in the garden, when God would walk, and God is still walking today, he's walking up and down these aisles because he, he wants to have a relationship with each one of us. But when he was in the garden wanting to have that relationship nurtured with Adam and Eve, it, it says they hid. They, they were afraid. They were afraid of God, and you should not be afraid of God when you have a relationship with him because when you read the Bible, you find out what kind of character he has, and you don't have to be afraid of him. He's a loving father. But God did not say, Eve, where are you? Nor did he say, Adam and Eve, where are you? He said, Adam, where are you? And God was putting the laser on the man. And it's still happening today, friend. And I want to challenge the men this morning that it's time. It's time to stop hiding from God in the garden. It is time to stop giving up, really, your position that God has given to you from the beginning of time to step up and lead spiritually. God is calling that to you and to me. And it's easy, it's easy to, um, to back down and walk away from it. In fact, Travis and I um, were talking about this uh, last week, that um, uh, a few years ago we did a men's fraternity with um, Robert Lewis, and we... I have to tell you, man, that that was probably one of the most uh, profound uh, teachings on biblical manhood that I've ever experienced, and so we're gonna we're gonna redo that in the fall uh, for the men, um, and so where did it go? It must be biodegradable because it's not here. Anyway, um, uh, resist passivity. 
That's, that's number one. Uh, because men tend to be passive, you know. And so we need to resist that. And we need to step up and take responsibility. And number three. Be courageous. Be courageous. Be courageous. Lead courageously. Yeah, that's what it takes. And then four, uh, God's reward. You know, wait for God's reward. You, you may not get it um, from other sources, but God will reward you. Uh, so in this uh, text today that we're going to be going through, a great example. And ladies, please don't check out because this is uh, applicable to you as well. And uh, I, I, I told the first gathering that uh, uh, on Father's Day, I, I've been this past week, in fact, thinking about my dad and, and uh, his father was messed up big time. Uh, he, he destroyed his family. He destroyed his wife. He destroyed his kids. And my father being the firstborn, when he got married, he made a choice that he would not follow what his father's example was. And, and, and um, he did a couple things good for me. One, I saw my dad consistently sitting in the corner on the sofa with the lamp on after working two jobs when I was a young boy. He'd, he'd work one, go to another one, get home 9.15, 9.30 at night, have to get up at be on the train by 6.30 in the morning. It was just, but he would be reading his Bible. I saw that, and it made an impression on me. And the second thing was that he uh, always drove the car to church on Sundays. You know, there was no other place to go but church. That made an impression on me. See, And that never happened with his dad. Never. See? You may be here this morning, and you, maybe your father was not the best example, but you can set a new standard. It's not too late. And so let's, uh, let's do that together. Yo, yo. All right, on the back of your programs, there's an outline, and we have, um, we have the text written there, 1 Kings 19. And uh, it's a story. Hey, Max, can you pull up uh, Burn the Plow? Can you do that? So Burn the Plow. Um, Anybody bring flame flower, flame throwers with them today? Because that's really what we need. We, we should have, ha- you know what? We messed up. We should have handed out flame throwers to the guys this morning. Because you're going to need it. Yeah, man. Burn the plow. And when I saw that match, <laughs> my wife's not in here, which is good. Uh, because I'm going to tell you a story. Well, she already knows this story, and she she... So when I was in, was I was in, I don't know, sixth grade, something like that. Uh, I didn't like my teacher, and uh, and so I had a, a bottle of. Uh, don't tell your kids, by the way. <laughs> I had a bottle of uh, cement glue in my in my desk, and I had matches. And I had a picture of my teacher. How did I have a picture of my I have no idea. And it was in my desk, so I burned it in my desk. And I'm sitting, I'm on the outside row, and, and so it's smoke, you know, is 
And the window's open on the, on the side, and, and she says, what's going on with the, somebody must be burning leaves out there, I said to her. She believed me. So, so when it comes to matches, man, be careful. Be careful. Um, yeah, sixth grade was a rough year for me at school, by the way. It was... And anyway, um, yeah, guys, we, we need to uh, get the flamethrower out today, and you'll, you'll understand as we go. So verse 15, 1 Kings 19, Then the Lord told him, Go back the same way you came, and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive there, anoint... Haziel to be king of Aram, then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be king of Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from the town of Abel-Meholah, to replace you as my prophet. So Elijah went. Pause button here. Don Fechner, happy Father's Day, man. He's got a pacemaker in him now, and almost 90 years old. The dude's on go for God. So the Lord told him, Elijah, go back and look at verse 19. So he went. If we can learn that secret as a follower of Christ, when God says go, we went. Or better grammar, we go. Right? There's, there's too many disconnections going on, man, in our in our walk with Christ today, we allow too many distractions and too many things to get in the way. When God says go, we don't. But I'm so glad the Lord told him to go, and he went. And if you, when you read this chapter, you'll find out that Elijah's messed up. He's messed up spiritually. He, he, he thinks he's the only man of God out there in Israel. And he's all alone. He's feeling all alone. And, and Jezebel, the, the king's wife, threatened to kill him. And so he's fearing for his life. He's running for his life. And he tells God he wants to die. He wants to give up. He wants to raise the white flag. And so what does God do? Does God come over and put a sign on his chest and say, Elijah, you're, you're finished. I'm finished with you, you man. You're so messed up, you know? No, he doesn't. In verses 15 and 16 here, we see that God recommissions him. He says, I'm not done with you, man. You may think you're done, but you're not done. I'm, I've still got stuff for you to do. Just like he has for you and for me. So, so here we have it. Um, Elijah went and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, plowing a field. There were 12 teams of oxen in the field, and Elisha was plowing with the twelfth team, and Elijah went over to him and threw his cloak across his shoulders and then walked away. And Elisha left the oxen standing there, ran after Elijah and said to him, First let me go and kiss my father and mother goodbye, and then I will go with you. And Elijah replied, Go on back, but think about what I have done to you. So Elisha returned his oxen and slaughtered them, and he used the wood from the plow to build a fire to roast their flesh. And he passed around the meat to the townspeople, and they all ate. And 
he went with Elijah as his assistant. Alan Langham lives in England. Uh, he's just, ri- just written a book about his life story, and I'm going to summarize it quickly here this morning. Some of you may be able to identify with, with Alan. Um, he said, six years ago, I was lost, broken, and ready to give up. I was an empty shell of once a promising rugby player shuffling around in an exercise yard in a London prison. I was a man of extreme violence who had done seven stretches behind bars. And while I was out there, God reached down to rescue me from the pit of hell. Friend, can I tell you something? If you're not living for the Lord... You are in a pit of hell because the elevator's going down to hell when your life ends. And Alan recognized that, man. His life was in a tailspin, as you'll find out. It's heaven or it's hell. There's There's no middle ground here. And Alan recognized that. He said, as a child, violence was everywhere I turned. My mother had been widowed by her first husband. She was abused by her second husband for 20 years and deserted by my father when I was eight months old. She and my two sisters surrounded me with love. I was throbbing with anger and resentment towards my absent father. I constantly was getting into fights with the neighborhood bullies, hoping to earn their respect. I was also abused several times by a family friend and one of the bullies down the street. On Sundays, I had a way of escape. I would would attend church down the block. At home, I was fatherless and abused. But at church, I felt safe and at peace. And one morning, one morning, I came downstairs and my mother was dead on the sofa. She was a victim of cerebral hemorrhage. And Alan says, something snapped in me that day. I was only 14 years old, but it put me on a road to destruction for the next 20 years of my life. I went to three schools, getting expelled from the first two for unmanageable behavior. By the time I was 16, I left home. I was a ticking time bomb. I was angry, I was bitter, and I was lost. I started drinking, gambling, fighting, emulating gangster lifestyles. It was my idea of what a man looked like. But I excelled at rugby, and at age 17, I signed a professional contract with Sheffield Eagles. Soon enough, I had more money than I knew what to do with. Craving acceptance from members of the criminal underworld, I perversely thought of as family. I began fighting for money, selling drugs, collecting debts for dealers, and generally bullying and intimidating my way through life. And I walked into my first prison term as a lost boy trapped inside a professional rugby player's body. Didn't take long for prison to turn me into a hardened criminal because it was a hostile world. There was... Physically, mentally, emotionally, only the fittest survived there. In prison, I developed a heroin addiction. 
which left me alienated from my firstborn daughter and her mother. Between sentences, I ended up sleeping on the streets in England, and man, if I didn't get thrown back into prison, I would have been dead on those streets. So back in custody, I had a picture of my little daughter, and I taped it on my cell wall, and I resolved that I would rebuild my life. But during the next two years, I got caught up in my schooling and got clean from heroin. But after I was released onto the streets, I soon returned to my old ways, drinking drugs, cocaine, now addicted to cocaine, yeah, partying, violent sex, and before long, I was right back in prison. During my stints in prison, I was always attracted to the prison chapel because I considered a place of refuge, uh, just like the church had been when I was a little boy down the street from my home. And while I was in prison, I studied everything, man. I experimented with Buddhism, Hinduism, spiritualism, counseling, course after course, medication, but nothing worked. Nothing helped. I was a wreck. And despite my burning desire to change, I couldn't find any peace or stability. And eventually, after stabbing a number of my fellow inmates, I landed in a top security prison in southeast London. I hated myself for the man that I had become. With a violent outburst and paranoid behavior, I had pushed away anyone I ever cared for. And I put my family through hell. I was mentally, emotionally, and spiritually broken. On the inside, I remained a lost little boy in desperate love and need of acceptance. While awaiting trial in a kidnapping and hostage-taking case, I finally hit rock bottom. With tears streaming down my face, I dropped to my knees, and I made one final plea to God. If you're real, God, and you hear me, put a white dove outside my prison window. Show me you are with me. I was only looking for a sign of hope and a new start for my life, but the next morning when a flock of pigeons lifted off the nearby ledge to my window, I saw a dove sitting there. And something inside me jumped. Tears of joy were had been replaced those tears of despair. And after transferring to another prison, I began studying my Bible, began talking to the Lord, and somebody gave me a book by Joyce Meyer, Battlefield of the Mind. And in the book, she describes the sexual abuse she suffered at the hands of her father, where she took it symbolically and laid it at the feet of Jesus. Ellen says, I decided to do that with my rage, my anger. And before going to sleep, I closed my eyes and Imagine Jesus on the cross dying for my sins. And I gave it, I gave it all to him. And when I awoke, I, I felt peace like I never felt before. And God, God in his patience, continued to work in and through my life. He gave me the privilege of going into prisons and testifying of the hope and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. He said, I've spoken to rooms full of men convicted of heinous crimes, men, murderers, and beyond. At a key moment when 
wondering where my life was going, God helped me launch a ministry, Steps to Freedom, that reaches out to young people abandoned by society. He let me return to my first love, sports, and as a chaplain, serving several teams in England. Miraculously, God even has given my family back. It's taken years, but one by one, he's repaired broken relationships with my sisters and their families, with my three children, and yes, with the father who deserted me so long ago. The refining process has been long and hard, but bit by bit, God is polishing me into a trophy of his great grace. Alan Langham had a target on him, friend. The enemy wanted to take him out as a little boy and destroy him into manhood. I don't know your story. I don't know your past. Maybe there's somebody here that say, man, Alan Langham, that's, I've done worse than that with my life. Well, you want to know something? God can change you. You can't do anything to destroy the love of God from pursuing you. And Alan Langham experienced that. And you would say it was a hopeless situation, wouldn't you? But God never gave up pursuing this man. And today, how about it? He's a walking signboard for the great grace of Jesus Christ in his life. And so this morning, as we look at our outline, number one, God is calling. God is calling and that is great news. Look at verse 15. Then the Lord told him, Elijah, go back the same way you came and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive there, anoint Hazael to be king of Aram. Then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be king of Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from the town of Abel-Meholah, to replace you as my prophet. Now, we mentioned this earlier, but in your Bibles, you can go to verse 14, and you can go to verse 10 of that same chapter, 1 Kings 19. And this is the dialogue that Elijah is having with God. Maybe you could identify with that. Maybe there's been a time in your life, or maybe you're in it right now, that you could say, man, that sounds like me. Listen to what Elijah says to God. I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets, and I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. What does that sound like? And he says in verse 10, the same thing. When... When you when you shrink your world down to yourself, it's a dangerous place to be. And and Elijah, who had been used in a powerful way by God, because of circumstances and life just has a way of beating you up, he wants to sign off and call at the end of the day spiritually. But the cool thing is God's calling. And he says, he, says to, he says to Elijah, Elijah, I've got a job for you, and we're gonna, we'll camp on, on this with Elisha, going to Elisha. Elijah's in, down by Mount Horeb. 
not here. <laughs> in the Middle East. He's hiding out in a cave. Feeling sorry for himself. God's got his eye on somebody else. 350 miles away. And that's Elisha. Now you may feel like you're just a number. People, Some people like crowds. They can get lost in a crowd. They don't want to be identified. They can blow in and blow out. Nobody recognizes them. And they feel comfortable with that. But for others, there's this sense of, man, I, I want to be known, you know? You are known, and you are seen by God, and God knows exactly where you're at. Because he's commissioning this man, Elijah, to go 350 miles to a man who's plowing in the fields. And you might say, well, he's just, he's just a farmer. Listen to me. It doesn't matter what you do. It is seen as valuable in the eyes of God. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But, but God is calling. So yesterday, there was a story in the news where a mom used a phone tracking app to find her daughter who missed curfew. And she was found pinned under her car for seven hours. And this is down in North Carolina. A frantic mother used the phone tracking app to locate her daughter after teen had crashed down a 25-foot embankment in North Carolina last week. The mom used the Find My Friends app. Pretty cool. Do you think God has one of those? (laughs) Find My Friends app. It's possible. Anyway, this lady's daughter, 17, the mom was concerned about her daughter because she missed curfew and did not answer any calls or texts from her brother or mother. And so that was out of character. This 17-year-old daughter was tight with her mom, not coming home or responding after curfew. Her mom got concerned, and she had been in that same location far too long, which prompted the mother to come to her daughter's rescue. I can't explain watching the GPS on my phone and my dot for my phone getting close to hers, you can imagine, and then suddenly seeing the tire tracks. Macy's family found her pinned underneath the car. I was lying in the ditch 20 yards off the road for the seventh hour with my arm pinned under my car. I will never forget the sound of my family calling out my name when they found me around 10.30 at night. I hydroplaned at 4 p.m. and ran into between two trees, flipped my car three times, landed in my back seat with my arm pinned in between the car and the ground. But during that harrowing ordeal. You know what Macy did? It's interesting. I searched for my phone to call for help, but the only thing in sight was my Bible. She had her Bible in the car. I held on to my Bible and I prayed harder than I ever prayed before. I do not deserve to be here right now, but God has bigger plans for me. Can I tell you something? God has bigger plans for you, friend. He had bigger plans for Elisha. Bigger plans for Elijah. He's got bigger plans for you. And so we see that God is calling. 
And he did not need a GPS, by the way, to find Elisha. (laughs) God sees everything. He knows everything. And he was able to have Elijah find out exactly where he was. Now listen to this. Acts 17, 27. Acts 17, 27. God's purpose was for the nations to seek after him and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Was God far from Alan Langham? Hmm? Was he? No. No. God's not far. In fact, the message puts it this way. God doesn't play hide-and-seek with us. He's not remote. He's near. He's near. I'm glad he's near. (laughs) I am. I am. Number two, it's decision time. It's decision time. So, um, verse 19, so Elijah went. We already talked about that. God said go, and Elijah went. And he found Elisha, son of Shaphat, plowing a field. And there were 12 teams of oxen in the field. And Elisha was plowing with the 12th team. And Elijah went over to him, threw his cloak across his shoulders, and then walked away. So Elisha, um, we don't know anything about him growing up or his family life or anything like that. He's, He's out in the field. We do know there's 12 teams of oxen, which, by the way, it's a flaring a flare in the air to say that they must be wealthy as a family. Because traditionally, a Jewish family would have one pair of oxen. That's it, to farm. And that, that was called good. So to think that they have 12 teams, and, and Elisha himself is out in that field running the 12th team, he's doing pretty well. He's got some security. But do you notice... Elijah comes out of nowhere, and here's Elisha behind the plow, just minding his business. You know, I'm just doing this every day. The oxen are leading, I'm following. And Elijah comes up and takes his cloak and throws it on him and walks away. Doesn't even say hi to him. Doesn't say, hey, Elisha, how about a cup of coffee? I brought some donuts from Dunkin' Donuts. Man, we need a break. It looks like you're sweating, you're working hard. Let's talk about what, what's about to happen in your life. Doesn't say a word to him. What would you do? What would you do? Would you be offended? Can't believe this guy throws a coat on me and then walks away. Man, what's the big deal? You want to know something? It's decision time. You know why it's decision time? Because not only was God speaking to Elijah in in Mount Horeb, but he was also speaking to Elisha 350 miles away, preparing him for this moment in his life. Can I tell you a secret? When I was working in a machine shop and prior to that, my life was messed up. You know, I was not good enough for God. God couldn't use me. I had all of these excuses, and I was feeling sorry for myself. And God behind that machine was talking to me. He was rebuilding my inside out, my core. He was speaking life into me. He was preparing me for my future. Now, somebody might say, man, what a waste of time. No, 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 no. 
that, that was one of the most valuable times of my life. God was speaking. God is big enough to speak to Elijah, and he's big enough to speak to Elisha at the same time. In fact, here's a secret. God is speaking to seven and a half billion people right now. All at the same time. And the question is, are you listening? That's the question. Because God is speaking. So, Elisha doesn't freak out, you know. He, he doesn't freak out. But it's decision time. What's he going to do? The cloak. Elisha is fully aware in that culture a cloak meant the call of God upon a person's life. He knew it. And so he had a decision to make. I am coming. I am in a perfect career. You know, I'm following behind my dad. My dad's built this farm up. It's, it's successful. It's it's financially secure for me. I'm in a good place. And God's got to come along and mess it up. It's decision time. What are you going to do? Well, hey, uh, Max, let's pull up that map. So, so here's, our, here's our Israel map of the days of Elijah and Elisha. And Abel Mahola, here we are, right here. That's where, that's where we're at. We're farming. We're all there right now. And Elisha's there with his 12 teams. We're right here. Where is that? Okay, well, it's, this is the Jordan River. This is the Sea of Galilee. This is the northern part of Israel. The entire country of Israel fills the state of New Jersey. That's how big it is. It's not a big mass of land. And yet, why is it interesting? It's interesting that the Middle East, there's countries that want to wipe it out. A little country like that. But northern, northern Israel, it's beautiful country. It's green. It's hilly. Trees. Sea of Galilee is beautiful. So the Jordan flows out of it, and it goes all the way down to the Salt Sea, or it's called the Dead Sea. What's living in the Dead Sea? Anybody know? It's dead. Nothing's living. Spiritually, where are you at? You in the Sea of Galilee or are you in the Dead Sea? It's one or the other, friend. It's one or the other. You in the, you in the Sea of Galilee or are you in the Dead Sea? Well, Elisha's right in the middle. Careful. Right in the middle between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. This is called the breadbasket in Israel for farming. It's the, the ground is fertile. It produces great crops. And so, in fact, the, um, the, uh, the town Abel Mahola in the Hebrew means meadow of dancing. Meadow of dancing. Now, if, if you were... Uh, if you were uh, looking to retire, you, you would say, hey, I want to I retire in Abel Mahola. The Meadow of Dancing, doesn't that sound, give me a brochure on that, man. I want to I land there. That just sounds so peaceful. You know, it's perfect. And Elisha could have said, that's where I want to stay, man. The Meadow of Dancing. Whew. Talk about a decision. 
Well, he's got to make a decision. And um, we see that Elisha takes off. Notice Elijah went over to him, threw his cloak across his shoulders, and then walked away. As a follower of Jesus Christ, in the New Testament, we don't need a cloak because we've been given the robe of righteousness. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, your sin is forgiven, and God symbolically puts a robe of righteousness on you. In Romans 4, 24, it says, God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him, the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to life to make us right with God. So when we sin, what does God do? What does God do? He sheds innocent blood. And he offers the life of his son for us. And Jesus gives us that robe of righteousness to say, you are righteous. You are holy in the eyes of God. That is amazing. And so it's decision time for, for Elisha. What's he going to do? You know, The cloak's on him. The robe of righteousness is on him. What's he going to do? Well, Isaiah 48, 17 says, I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is good for you and leads you along the paths you should follow. I am so glad we have a God like that. I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is good. It doesn't say what's bad, does it? What's the worst for you? No, it's what's good for you and leads you along the paths you should follow. And so Elisha chose to listen to God, and he signs off the farm. Number three, you say goodbye. Verse 20, Elisha left the oxen standing there, ran after Elijah, said to him, first let me go kiss my father and mother goodbye, and then I will go with you. And Elijah replied, go on back, but think about what I have done to you. Interesting verse there. Elisha's got a great relationship with his parents. He's, you know, even though the cloak has been thrown on him, he's not going to leave his, his parents abandoned. You know, Hey, where did our son go? He disappeared. No, he's going to go to his mom and dad, and it's interesting that he kisses his father. And my father never kissed me, and it's not that I'm feeling sorry for myself. It's just the culture that he was in. But I want to tell you something. My father-in-law kissed his sons, and I saw that when I was dating my wife. And I said, I want to do that when I become a father. And I want to tell you something. It, it's liberating, I think. It's, it's a sign of affection for a father for, to his son. You know, I love you. I'm proud of you. And that's where Elisha's going. He's going to his dad. He respects his dad enough to go and kiss him. And likewise to his mother. And then, and then, Elijah speaks and says, go on back, but think about what I've done to you. The point is, this is where the disconnect comes. If we procrastinate when God tells us to do something, Distractions come, busyness of life. We never do what God told us to do. Elijah is reminding 
Elisha, don't become distracted when you say goodbye to your parents. Well, maybe I should stick around a little while longer. You know, I got a lot of work to do in my closet, you know. No, no. Elijah's just reminding him, keep it, keep it all in perspective, Elisha. Yeah, go, go do it, but don't forget what I told you. You need to answer the call. So I want to encourage you, and I'm encouraging myself, uh, to do that very thing. Number four, burn my options. And this is where the flamethrowers come in, guys. Are you ready? <laughs> burn my options, verse 21a. So Elisha returned to his oxen and slaughtered them. He used the wood from the plow to build a fire to roast their flesh. He passed around the meat to the townspeople, and they all ate. What's he doing? You want to know why people get stuck spiritually? I've seen it. I've seen it happen so many times. People get stuck spiritually because they never burn their past. They never burn what's got a grip on them. You know, when things get tough, when things get challenging. So C.T. Studd was a was a missionary in the late 1800s, and when he put his faith in Christ. He never told anybody. He went undercover for God. And for six years, he was an undercover Christian. You know what happened to him? He drifted away from God. Became spiritually cold. In fact, he grew farther away from God. And then he heard D.L. Moody speak. And C.T. Studd recommitted his life to Christ, and the first thing he did was he started telling people about what Jesus had done in his life. You know what he did? He became a missionary to China, India, around the world. You want to know something else about C.T. Studd? His father was very wealthy, had a lot of money to give to his three sons. You know what C.T. Studd did? He gave most of it away. He kept a little, he kept a little bit for his future wife, you know, when they got married, You know what his future wife said to him? I'm not going to marry you unless you give that money away. Good woman. We need to rely on the Lord, she said. Oh, man. Give it all away. Yeah. You got to burn your options. You need to go public. So Elisha said yes to God. Sends out a memo to all the town. Abel Mahola, free lunch. Watch me burn my gizmo, my plow. Free meat, potato salad, ice cream bars. Kind of reminds me of the picnic next Sunday. See, he's going public. It wasn't his little secret, and that's, that's another dangerous thing. We, we can keep it a secret, so if we don't do it, nobody knows. God knows. Elisha was proclaiming, I'm, I'm going to follow Elijah. I'm going to make his coffee every day. That's what I'm going to do. I'm giving up farming. I'm giving up my retirement. I'm, doing, I'm going all in for God. That's what he's doing. And he's telling the whole town about it. And they're listening while they're eating. Go for it. 
Go for it, Elisha. Burning it, man. He's burning his options. You know that song, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus, comes to mind. No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. I tell you what, friend, that takes a man to do that. It takes a woman to do that. To follow the crowd, it's so easy. Though none go with me. Elisha, Elisha's got it. And so, what are the plows that God wants you to burn in your life? What, what are our dependencies, ways of thinking, bitterness, resentment, excuses? Are, what, what comes to mind that needs to be burned in your life? You see, um, over the years doing uh, marriage counseling with couples that are on the brink of divorce, What do you tell a couple? Burn the plow. Burn the bridge. Divorce is not an option. Anytime there's a way of escape, friend, it's easy to take the easy way. The grass is always greener over the hill and through the woods. To grandmother's house we go. When you eliminate that second door, I would tell you, I'm telling you straight up, the majority of those couples stay together. When divorce is not in the vocabulary, when divorce is not an option, they work at it. Every marriage has struggles. Every marriage has conflict. But you fight for it. You burn the way out. So you're there for the long haul. Any yo's on that? Yo? Yo? All right. So that's what we need to do. We need to, we need to burn. And, and number, number five, actions speak louder than words. Verse 21b, then he went with Elijah as his assistant. You know, it's easy to say, I'm going to do that. You know, words. The words come out so easy. I promise to do that. You know, it's easy to say, but when when your words and your actions line up together, powerful. Actions speak louder than words. Notice Elijah is followed by Elisha. It says he went. He went. He didn't stay. He went with Elijah as his assistant. So here's Elisha in this perfect career in farming. Perfect. Perfect future. He signs off on it, burns it all behind him, and says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to become an assistant to Elijah. I'm going to work, work with him for years as an assistant. I'm going to make his coffee. I'm going to go down to Quick Trip and buy those donuts, those glazed donuts in the morning for him, you know? Those healthy things that are so good for you. He served him as an assistant. He was good with that. 
We need to be willing to say, God, whatever your calling might look like in my life. Now listen. First of all, some of you might be making excuses even now. Well, Elisha was in full-time ministry. Can I tell you a secret? If you put your faith in Jesus, you're in full-time ministry. Hmm? You know, I've told this story before, but you know the dude in the truck blaring the music with the windows down who cleans porta-potties? That's what he does for a job? He's in full-time ministry. And he realized that because when he came to the porta potty that nobody cleaned very good, very well, he did a professional job. And he came out smiling and he was singing while he worked in that porta john so that all the construction workers around him got his attention. What is with this dude? You know? And as he comes out of the porta john, he says, I'll see you guys next week. If you're a construction dude, wouldn't you just start to wonder, like, what is, what's this guy got that I don't have? You see, he's in full-time ministry, and he's having fun with it. God has you where you are on purpose so that you can tell people and promote the kingdom of God wherever you are on purpose, full-time. So, actions... Speak louder than words. A couple weeks ago, I was watching, I don't know, the National Geographic or they had a special about the glacier birds and how they were filmed in Peru. And they're the only bird known in the world to nest inside glaciers. And in the mountains of Peru, where these glacier birds live, uh, they, had a, they, they had this thing filmed, you know, where guys went up there for the first time and they were filming it and they were, I, I can tell you, man, I was like my heart for the glacier birds. Pounding. You want to know why? Because spring was coming and the side of the glacier was dripping. It was thawing out. And the nest that was embedded on the side of that glacier was at risk of falling thousands of feet. And so the mom and dad of the glacier birds embedded in that glacier realized that time was ticking away, that they needed to get their little birds out of that nest into the real world. The, the safety of that nest was being compromised because with the dripping, will that nest hold? Well, two out of the three birds took off. They got up, but there was one bird left. One! And you know what happened? Dad and mom took a vote. And they voted to starve that little bird in the nest. You want to know why? Because if they kept feeding that bird in the nest, he wouldn't want to leave. They knew that. And so the bird in this, mom hates me, dad hates me, they're not feeding me, I'm starving to death. He's feeling sorry for himself, just like Elijah was. And so the camera crew is just freaking out. Is he going to get out in time? Is the nest going to go? 
get out, get out. You know, mom and dad are just up the hill on this rock formation. You know, they're waiting there, calling his name, Billy, Billy. But I like this nest that's comfortable. I don't want to leave. The food's up here. Get out. And then he flies. And the camera crew's freaking out. He made it. He made it. And I'm going, yeah, yeah. Where does that bird go? He goes to dad and mom. Why? Because that's where the food is. not in the nest anymore. Do you ever feel that way about God? Like he's starving you out? Hmm? Do you realize that God sees the nest and the, and, the, and the thawing of the glacier by your life? That if you stay where you are indefinitely, it's going to kill you. It'll kill you spiritually. Maybe God is... God's trying to get you to move out of that comfort area, that comfort nest, huh? He's trying to bump you out to take that next step with him. Is it possible? Actions speak louder than words. Father, we thank you this morning for your love, for your care, for your concern. I think of Alan Lang, Langham who <clears throat> had everything going against him, Lord, and how you pursued him and you called him and he chose to put his faith in you and radically tra- transformed his life. And I think of Elijah who wanted to give up spiritually. I, wanted, I, I think of Elisha who had everything on easy street going for him, but he signed off on it to, to follow your plan for his life. Never had any regrets about that. And Lord, here we are. We, we've got, maybe we've got stuff to burn. Maybe we've, we've got stuff we fall back on so easy. When things get stressful, we go back to it because it's, a, it's like a blanket, a security blanket for us. We need to say goodbye to the past that haunts us. We need to burn our options when things get tough, challenging spiritually. It's decision time, Lord. Will you help us follow through with what we've said yes to in the past and allowed busyness, distractions to keep us from following through with that, Lord? Will you forgive us for making excuses why you can't use us. Lord, will our words and our actions line up with each other? Will you help us do that? I pray for each person, every man, every woman in this room, Lord, that this morning, whatever's holding each one of us back, we will burn it once and for all and take that step out of the nest to where you are leading us in that next step with our lives. I thank you, Lord, 
never giving up on us. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for coming out this morning. And um, just, a, just a couple things. Uh, if I could, I'd like to say that, and it's true, that the most important decision, we talked about it's decision time, but the most important decision is when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. It really is. It's, that's the most important decision that you'll ever make in life. And if you'd like more information about what that means, these are free on the back wall in the foyer. It's, it's called the invitation. And excuses and reasons why people give are, are explained and talked about. And how you can have a relationship with Christ. I encourage you to take this today. And also... What's your next step? Which Elisha would take this today. Yeah? Putting your faith in Christ, what's the next step? These are free. And uh, we'd love for you to take it. And if you're a guest, we'd love to see you in a cafe uh, as well, just to say hi. Thanks for coming out this Father's Day at the Life Church Gathering. Enjoy your day. May the hand of God rest upon your shoulder today and you can sense that that hand is a hand of love, a a hand that wants God to direct you, a hand that wants to hold you. That's your Heavenly Father. And so embrace that freely. In Jesus' name, amen.